this shows you where my mind is. I'm doing the dua for the end. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay, so, so we've now completed Al-Fatiha and we are now going to begin Ali or we're going to begin Al-Baqarah, sorry. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to keep my, my thinking straight throughout the whole class, inshallah. So our goal is to now get into the beginnings of Al-Baqarah. And first thing I need to do is to give you an outline of the surah. And a way to think about the structure of the surah is that it's 286 ayahs of which you can almost neatly categorize all the sections into 40 ayah, 40 ayah lengths meaning 40 ayah chapters, so to speak. So if we take chapter two and take all the all the uh, parts of it, every 40 ayahs or so, and not cleanly, uh, are the different sections. But if we were to then organize the whole surah, we have al-Baqarah, first section is one to 39, Second section is 40 to 123, I believe. I got to double check that. Fourth section is 75 to 284. And then the fifth section is the last two ayahs. And so this first section is essentially the introduction. And our goal is to get as far into the introduction through the month of Ramadan as we can. And if we only make it through half of it, that's fine. Because again, my focus is on quantity, quality rather than quantity, quality over quantity. And then the next section is the Ummah of Musa, peace be upon him. So the nation of Moses, peace be upon him. The next section after that is the Ummah of Muhammad. Peace be upon the Prophet, peace be upon him. And notice that sections two and three overlap. And the last we have the conclusion. And so there are subsections in, in all of this. These would be the big, big units. And notice this is close to 40 ayahs. And so you can imagine this is a section of, of three subchapters. And then this is a section of, of about seven or about six uh, subchapters. And then we have the last two ayahs. And so that's the organization of the surah. In terms of the name of the surah, the names of the surahs are primarily always identification. Meaning, if you know my name is Omar, you may make some assumptions about gender, religion, maybe some sort of ethnicity, possibly. But does it tell you anything about my personality? Not necessarily, although when I was a kid and I was rambunctious, my auntie said to my mother, you know, you named him Omar, what did you expect, right? Uh, secondarily, sometimes the name of the surah might give us a theme. 
So in the same way we speak of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, we're assuming Harry Potter is going to be in the book and there's going to be something about the Chamber of Secrets. Not necessarily the case with the names of the suras. The names of the suras, it's primarily identification. And so there are numerous exceptions to this. Al-Fatiha is the name of Al-Fatiha, but it also gives us the role of the surah. It is the Fatiha, it is the opener of the rest of the Quran. It's the flashlight through which we look at the rest of the Quran. And that's why the course began with Al-Fatiha. It's laying out the whole foundation, meaning what we covered in the past week literally was a complete picture of Islam as a concept. That was literally the whole of Islam. And now, Al-Baqarah, the name is connected to an event that, that's covered in about five ayahs from Ayah 67 to 71, um, in an event of Prophet Moses, peace be upon him, with some of his followers, that could be giving us something thematic about the whole surah or not. Ali Imran the family of Imran is the family of Mary, thus the family of Jesus, peace be upon them. And that's a big part of the surah. But is that the whole of the surah? No. Nisa, women. Um, if you go to the surah, it almost seems like you, if we're going to look at the content, it would be better to call it the orphans because so much of it is about the orphans and such. And so same thing. What is the primary purpose of the names of the surahs? It's actually identification. Where did the names come from? Most cases, they came from the prophet, peace be upon him. But it's verbally transmitted, meaning it was not written as part of the Quranic text. So if you go through the Uthman copy of the Quran, you're not going to see the names of the surahs there. Uh, you're going to see just the content of the Quran. In the same way, you're not going to see how to pronounce the letters. That's verbal, that's handed down. And so... so that's how to appreciate the names, primarily identification. Even at the time of the companions, they may have identified the surahs by way, by way of the names, but very often they would identify them just by the first few ayahs. So, for example, a kid, if you ask a Muslim kid, okay, have you memorized al-ikhlas? And the kid will be like, you know, why are you yelling at me, man? But if you ask, did you memorize qul huwallahu ahad? They'll be like, oh yeah, qul huwallahu ahad, Allah samad, let me live, let me live, right? And, and so the companions would also often know the surahs by the first few ayahs. Because think about what's taking place in their lifetime. The surahs are still getting formed. So most of al-Baqarah comes later. The first part of al-Baqarah comes in in the first, uh, you know, while the prophet is in Mecca. The last two ayahs he receives in the night journey. And then he has the, the, the migration. And then about six months or so into the migration, he receives the whole rest of the surah. And so, so the point is that part of the reason that the companions may not have identified surahs by their names is because the surahs were not even complete yet. Okay, any questions about the structure or the names? And this is just foundational logistical information, so to speak. Uh, Malahat, you look like you have a question. Yeah, so not not the question, just a comment to the verse to one to thirty nine. Yeah, actually, mostly the adapt of the the attitude of the belief of the three attitude regarding the position of the leadership and tawhid, right? Like uh, I don't understand the question. Uh, explain more, please. 
so is i mean the the topic covered between the verses of 1 to 39 is more like the unity of allah right um i mean sure but i think that also applies to section 2 section 3 section 4 yeah right you know um, those are the those are the more explanation right from 40 to 141 is like the explanation and reason of the disposition of bani israel and the position of the leadership and invitation to mm-hmm. them right about the law of the divinity and all these things so and, let me do this um hold on to your question as a thesis okay and then as we're finishing up ramadan you know come back to your thesis and see uh if if your thesis work okay sounds good yeah inshallah okay okay uh, any other questions about uh about um just the the, the layout okay so then moving there uh, a small point is that this is categorized as a madani surah and so surahs are often categorized as makki or madani or madani there's quite a few different ways that the surahs are categorized and the most common that you'll find is was it revealed before or after hijra or was most of its content revealed before or after hijra if uh the content was revealed before the prophet's migration from makkah to medina then it is called makki it doesn't matter where he was physically and then if the content is revealed after his migration from makkah to medina then it's madani again it doesn't matter where he is physically it's categorized as madani because for example if you know surah idaja an nasrullah wal fat that is one of the very last surahs in the quran one of the very last surahs he received but it's categorized as madani even though he himself physically was in makkah now why uh, what's the point point or benefit um these different types of categorizations give give us some general insights to content so makki surahs and madani surahs makki surahs tend to focus primarily on faith matters of faith madani surahs will add a lot of discussion on rules so now to to frame the biography of the prophet peace be upon him he's in makkah for 13 years he receives his first revelations when he's 40 and then after uh, about 13 years of preaching he then goes into exile in in what becomes medina where he is for 10 years and then he dies uh, uh 10 years later right so 13 years in makkah 10 years in medina 13 years of makkah he's doing his initial calling and the vast majority of the content of the revelations he's receiving are about the oneness of god the reality of the day of judgment and some critiques of the ethical uh misconduct of the people of makkah like why are they burying their daughters or why are they taking advantage of people in trade so most of it is about matters of faith belief in a law belief in the prophethood belief in the day of judgment but then when we move to medina now he's the leader of a whole community and so then we will have passages about rules how to conduct yourself in these types of matters and those types of matters and that's in general the difference between makki or madani how are those surahs classified at the revelation start before hijra but complete after hijra yeah there i mean usually they would be defined by what the majority of the surah is 
So in this case, Surah Al-Baqarah, the last two ayahs were revealed in before Hijra. The, the, the first 284 ayahs were revealed after Hijra, so it's considered to be a Madani Surah. So these are general uh, labels. And there will be some disagreements too. And to make it even more fun, the Prophet also received revelations while on the pilgrim, while on the migration. And so some commentators will connect them with the sets before, some will with, uh, connect them with the sets after. So, so, so moving from there, jumping right into the surah itself. The first ayah is Alif Lam Mim. Now, what is the common explanation we give to this? The common explanation we give is nobody knows what this means except for Allah, which is true, but that's also true for every single ayah of the Quran. So, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, nobody knows its true meaning except for Allah. Likewise for alif lamim, nobody knows its true meaning except for Allah. Of course, the difference is that if I have a sentence to work with, then I can probably try to understand uh, what an ayah is about. But you see the first point we're making, that we're saying only Allah knows its true meaning, but that actually applies to every single passage of the whole Quran anyway. Humans cannot derive the meaning of it. Well, I mean, does that apply Muslim, to every passage? What do you think? It does, but the difference is what? The difference is that in other passages, we have more words to work with, less ambiguity. But what is taking place here is that if I don't know what it means, so I'm writing on the whiteboard. Can you all see on the whiteboard? Yeah. If I don't know what it means, but I believe that Allah knows, then what does it mean? I have submitted. I've begun the process of submission. If I'm saying, I don't know what this means, but Allah knows what it means, then I have accepted that I have limits on my intellect that Allah is not limited by. The limits to my knowledge that Allah is not bound by. And so this becomes a fundamental uh, process of submission. Uh, so when we accept the Quran, as a, as a Quran of the word of Allah, we already have a submission. So what, where this submission comes in, mm -hmm. this, is the, this is like a subsequent submission? So think about it this way. Uh, what did we say Al-Fatiha was all about? Do you remember? Like uh, yesterday or on Sunday? Opening. So, I mean, that's the, that's the surah. But the content of Al-Fatiha, we said it's a prayer right. for guidance. And so now this becomes the first step in the answer. So I've asked for guidance. And now what is a step towards deepening my guidance is that I'm embracing, embracing that this is the word of Allah, that I don't know what this means, that Allah knows what this means. So yes, what you're saying is, yes, we've already done that, but now we're actually going to see the formation of how to grow as a believer. 
Yeah, but I'm driving towards like what we're discussing last night is that, you know, is, is it that the will of Allah that this, this portion is not for our understanding? Or? And the rest of the Quran is, is opening the door for our understanding because Quran itself says that, you know, we make it easy for them who ponder. Okay. It, right. So, so I think I understand the point that you're making, but um, uh, I don't understand the, the core of what you're arriving to. Meaning, no, I'm just trying to say that, you know, is, is that that's more like submission towards the will of Allah, right? Well, let's see, at this point, uh, I would say there isn't really any distinction right now, because basically I'm just submitting by saying I am less than Allah. Meaning he has knowledge that I don't have. Okay, we'll have to talk about it more, inshallah. Okay. Make more sense, inshallah. Okay. So, so you all get this point, right? Otherwise, just the basic point we're making is that by me accepting that I don't know what this means and Allah knows what this means, then I, I am in this process of submission. And then what else is taking place? One of the close companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, his name is Abdullah ibn al-Abbas. He is asked, okay, what does this mean? Because Abdullah ibn al-Abbas, you don't need to remember the name, although it's a very important name to know. Uh, for our purposes, we won't be repeating it over and over again. Um, he is named by the Prophet, peace be upon him, as the commentator of the Quran. And so others ask him, what does Alif Lami mean? And he says it means that Allah knows all. That that's the meaning of Alif Lam Mim. How? Allah knows best. And so there are different theories for all these different surahs that begin with these disconnected letters. There's Alif Lam Mim, there's the surahs that begin with Hamim. There's the surahs that begin with Alif Lam Ra. There are all kinds of theories. And they're very, very qualitative, meaning they're not very, very precise. But there is a pattern we can see. So if I close uh, this screen for a second and I pull up and I share the Quran screen, um, can you all see this, the, the Quran uh, on my screen? Yeah, pretty good. So this is Surah 2. We have Alif Lam Mim, and right after Alif Lam Mim, we have this is the scripture in which there is no doubt. Okay. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Surah 3. We have Alif Lam Mim. God, there is no God but him, the ever-living, the ever-watchful. Step by step, he has sent down the scripture to you. Okay. If we jump forward, say to Surah Yunus, Alif Lam Mim again. I don't know if the color is changing. Alif Lam Mim. And then these are the verses of the wise book, Kitab again. Anybody notice the pattern? Surah Yusuf, Alif Lam Ra, three different letters again. These are the verses of the scripture. So 29 of the surahs begin with disconnected letters. And almost all of them then follow up with some mention of the book. Except for two or three examples. One is Surah Rum, the Romans, Surah number 30 which begins with disconnected letters and then talks about the Romans. Another is Surah 19, Surah Maryam, which has five uh, disconnected letters and then starts talking about the prayer and the mercy of uh, the mercy that Allah has on Zakaria and the prayer he makes. 
But otherwise, in almost every case, we go from these disconnected letters to uh, a mention of the book. So is there a meaning we can derive there? Maybe, maybe not, but we can say that there is a pattern, that it doesn't seem to be arbitrary, that when a sutta begins with disconnected letters, it's just random. There might be uh, a meaning, like for example, starting with these vague letters and then talking categorically about the book, that there's a common notion in Islamic thought that your experience with reality is that you're moving from the unknown to the known, or from the ambiguous, the vague, the hazy, to the clear. Okay. Uh, Malahat, you had a question, and then Shala. No, oh, sorry, this is the previous one. Before, okay. Uh, Shala. So is it possible that with time that, that these mysterious letters will um, mean more to us, you know, humanity as a whole? Sure. Because yeah. there's no passage that says you're not going to know what this means. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, and but even the Quran, I mean, I think that with time, I think the meaning to different civilizations changes, right? Yeah. And so potentially we'll gain some knowledge, um, you know, as humanity as a whole, and it'll become clear potentially. Absolutely. No. Inshallah. Yeah. Yeah. There are, again, theories uh, even about, uh, about pre-Islamic poetry and, and beginning with such letters and such. And maybe this is a code to be cracked, or maybe it won't be. Yeah. And so even we can add your point uh, to what we have up here by saying, if I need to know, then I trust Allah to teach me. Inform me. So, in terms of uh, Islamic spiritual discourses, there is a lot more uh, on these uh, on these letters, but fundamentally what we have here on the screen uh, would be the big points. If I don't know what this means, uh, and I believe Allah knows what it means that I've submitted, and then we said that it goes from these letters, and then after that in some form, it talks about the book, the Kitab, which could be a reference to this common notion in Islamic law that you're moving from the unknown to the known, the ambiguous to the clear, or from the lack of guidance to guidance. What I'd really like to focus on, however, is the idea of the living community. So let's make this point on a different screen. If I am someone who's fluent in Arabic and I know nothing about Islam, somehow I know absolutely nothing about Islam, how will I read this word or these letters? Anyone? Alam. Alam. So what is alam? Alam is uh, either an interrogative, a negative interrogative. Alam nashrah laka sadrak. Did we not expand your chest? Yeah. Or I might read this as a word, alima. What does alima mean? Anyone know? Like azabun alim. It means pain. Yeah. 
So none of those relate to what is actually Alif Lamim. So how do I know to read this as Alif Lamim rather than Alam something something? Or oh, the grammar might not work. Or Alima. Imagine how different this whole surah would be if the first word was pain. So this gets into the idea of the living community. That most of the practice and preservation of Islam is through relationships. Meaning, so I'll expand person to person. Family to family, community to community. And then overall, generation to generation. This is where you will find most of the practice and preservation of Islam. Secondarily, but of equal importance, is through the scholarly tradition. Which is starting from the Prophet, peace be upon him, and then going to the later generations. Okay, so let me illustrate this a different way, and then I'll come back to Alif Lamim. So, simple question. Uh, how did you learn how to pray? Uh, Khoram, how did you learn how to pray? More like, uh, uh, it's like a, a transferring tradition that passed generation to generation. How did you learn how to pray namaz? Like watching my parents pray. Uh, so, you learn for your parents. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Nather, how did you learn how to pray? Um parents, maybe some Sunday school as well. Okay. Uh, Isa, how'd you learn how to pray? Don't worry, I'm not going to put all of you on the spot. Okay, Isa might not be. Uh, uh, oh, Sunday school. Okay, so you learn from people. Judy learned from repetition. Samina learned from Allah. Ta'ala. Okay, I know obviously that is Samina's husband typing there. Okay, uh, watching as well. Yeah, and so you might start with a book, you might start with the internet, you might start with a video. But even then, when you really learn how to pray, when you're praying with other people. And so, so one of the open miracles of Islam, which I'm even suggesting is a bigger miracle than the preservation of the Quran itself, and I'll explain why, is the preservation of the prayer. Because there's no central manual on how to pray. Like we'll often say, okay, the Quran doesn't teach you how to pray, the Hadith do. No, the Hadith don't teach you how to pray. The Hadith, if you want to get all the, the Hadith on how to pray, you're going to have about 300 Hadith narrations that you have to glue together to figure out how to pray. Now, how'd you learn how to pray? From someone who learned from someone, who learned from someone, who learned from someone, going all the way back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. And the fascinating part is that we don't have a central manual, and yet you go on Hajj, and everybody prays almost exactly the same way. 
even those differences, like do I put my hands here? Do I put my hands here? Those also get traced back to the prophet, peace be upon him. It's literally an open miracle. And think about you know our conversation uh, about uh, you know what you what do you think of uh, when you think of the Muslim world and what do you think of when you think of the Muslim Ummah? A common sentiment people have: okay, it's it's a bunch of corrupt people, a bunch of you know illiterate people. Even with whatever level of corruption we have in our community, even with all the levels of literacy illiteracy, somehow the prayer gets preserved without a central book on how to pray. It's literally person to person that no other community has been able to sustain in their own traditions, right? The closest would be the Catholics in terms of mass. And at least you could say there you have central leadership and you have a whole structure of central leadership that basically you know, prescribes, here's how you do things, right? You don't find this in Judaism. You don't find this in the rest of Christianity. You don't find this in Buddhist tradition, so forth and so on. This is literally an open miracle in, in Islam. And so I'm saying this is, I regard this as a bigger miracle than the preservation of the Quran, which is its own miracle, because the Quran's still at 600 pages of words. So you can check right away, you know. And so, so a major aspect of the whole experience of religion goes back to this whole idea of relationships, that it's literally passed down. Which now think about what that also means. It means that every single person in this class has a burden of responsibility of handing it off to the next people in whatever capacity, right? My role as teacher might mean that I have a higher responsibility, but we're not just the recipients of this, we're also the transmitters to the next people, whoever they might be. So might be one moment in your life or it might be an entire you know, multi-decade period in your life, whatever the case may be. And so, so likewise, how to pronounce every letter in the Quran. There isn't a book that gives you how to pronounce every single letter. Try to even imagine how many volumes that would be to take 600 pages of material and then 6,000 verses and then to pronounce, here's how you pronounce the alif of alif lam mim. Here's how you pronounce the lam. You, can't, you wouldn't be able to write a book that big in a lifetime. And so you can write... Uh, Okay, uh, by the, uh, uh, this is a good pushback. No, you'll have a little manual, a little tiny 20 page manual that'll tell you in general how to pronounce everything. But the point is that it's not going to tell you how to pronounce every, every letter as you're going through every, every surah. And so this is handed down and traced back, in theory at least, to the prophet, peace be upon him. So this is another point to consider when we have Alif Lam Mim, that it is on the one hand, an illustration of our intellectual submission to Allah, that we're saying, I have limits of my knowledge that Allah does not have. And on another point, it's illustrating this continuous living tradition of the practice of Islam. Through all our different personality types, all our different levels of literacy, all our different levels of wealth, so forth and so on. And then this point gets especially illustrated in terms of end time prophecies. So all those uh, fun and scary prophecies about the end of the world is when Allah says that the Quran will be taken away 
and or not Allah, the, the Prophet says peace in the Quran will be taken away and knowledge will, 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 will also vanish. Not because people are forgetting things, but because the carriers of the knowledge will be dying off and no one will be continuing the process. And so these are some points to take regarding Alif Lam Mim. The last big point, which actually I just realized I didn't get to in the, in the previous class, is that so much of our experience with life is dealing with the unknown. And I think I mentioned before that the most common struggle my undergrads have is in dealing with anxiety. And what is the anxiety? It is this response, a psychological and physical response to the unknown. How do I deal with the unknown? You know, just like in the same way that we might worry about something, we're worrying about the unknown. And worrying usually doesn't help us, but if you're a parent, you can't, you can't really help it. But the point is that worrying, you know, weakens you, but it doesn't change anything of the unknown. And so, so much of our life is literally involving the unknown. You will never not have unknown in your life because that's the question of what's going to happen tomorrow. What's going to happen to my income? What's going to happen to my health? What's going to happen to my loved ones? Will I have loved ones? So forth and so on. And so one of the key themes we're going to see very soon, just like our relationship with Alif Lamim, is the more trust we can have, primarily trust in Allah, the better we will be in dealing with the unknown. The less trust we have, the harder the unknown will be. Now it could be, that the less trust I have is because I feel like I've gotten hurt so many times, or maybe I've really actually gotten hurt so many times. So I'm afraid to have trust. But trust is central to your whole experience with reality, including the chair that you're sitting on is a matter of trust that it's not going to break. Right? As soon as it starts wobbling, you're immediately going to get up because you don't trust the chair anymore. And so take time to reflect upon where trust, this is not a homework assignment, but where trust plays out in your life. Okay, any questions? Is there any um, from um, uh, Prophet's uh, hadith, any, any, any explanation of uh, Alif Lam Mim or all these words? So the closest any thing is that narration from Abdullah ibn al-Abbas, where he is saying that Alif Lam Mim means that Allah knows all. Uh, but it doesn't seem as though we have as much in terms of what do the other letters mean. So we may assume that uh, Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, might not much uh, ponder on these words, at least in, 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 in front of uh, Sahaba. It's uh, absolutely possible that the Prophet doesn't know what they mean. It's possible that the Prophet does know what they mean, but for whatever reason, it's not shared. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, but it doesn't seem as though it seems as though he did not share the meanings of these yep. uh, to the to the companions but what's also interesting is that it doesn't seem as though the companions asked many questions about what does this mean they asked that's all kinds of questions point. about everything you know but it's another it point you know. and so maybe they accepted it right away maybe it was something already in their culture one knows best 
Can I just say a thank you to Shayla because she made me think about something. She said, with time, maybe we'll know more. And it reminds me of the Sorowal Osler. And I just want to say thank you to her for that. So, so say thank you to her. You know, it seemed like you wanted to say thank you, but did you actually say thank you? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> thank you, Shayla. <laughs> Any other questions or needs to? to give acknowledgement, kudos, no one else. All right, inshallah. Uh, so tomorrow, uh, uh, now the two classes are really gonna completely start diverging. So tomorrow we'll get into ayah two of, of Al-Baqarah as well as ayah two of Ali Imran. Uh, ayah two of Ali Imran will be in the first of the previous hour. Okay, no other questions? Then we will stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude to you. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness. Wa natubu ilayk, and we turn to you. May Allah Ta'ala reward you all, inshallah. And hopefully your Ramadan is going well and will get better and better. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.